Well, it's good to see you guys. I love these ironworks on Saturdays. It's a great time. I'm glad you guys are here. And uh, uh, we got some stuff to cover. Uh, why don't you turn with me to 1 Kings? Uh, you say, Brett, are we going through the Bible still on Saturday morning, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book? Well, it's kind of fun because I found out that as you go through the Bible as a church, that where we're at in the Bible is where we're at in life. And also congregationally, I found it's kind of interesting how our church is going through stuff and challenges and the things the Lord is showing us corporately, I think is oftentimes what we're learning, you know, uh, in, in all the other aspects of life as well. So uh, it's First Kings. I'm going to have you actually turn to First Kings chapter 2. It says in First Kings 2 verse 1, now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest and whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, if thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. It's a bit saddening, really, when you read this, because many of you know the way this story goes. You know, it's, it's a, with great anticipation. I'm sure David was thinking, oh, Solomon, this is your chance to be the king over Israel, and you get a chance to walk in the ways of the Lord, and you got a fresh, clean slate, man. And he says, he says you know, be strong, therefore, and, and it says, and, you know, show thyself a man. Now, that phrase, that's not something we really spent a lot of time on congregationally when we went through this little section a few weeks ago, but it is something that I think uh, we have to think about. What was he saying? Was he saying, make sure that people know you're a male? Is that what he was saying? No. Uh, in our culture uh, today, that might be something a father would say to his son. But in those days, it wasn't as much of a thing. In fact, it was something that um, it meant, it really had, had kind of more to do with make sure that you're a strong and excellent man, a man of excellence. Uh, show yourself a, like a, a man, you know, it's in our vernacular, we would say a real man, like a, a guy who is um, manly, manliness. Now, here's the problem. Manliness uh, is a tough word these days. It used to be actually a complimentary term. Now it's become sort of a derogatory term, hasn't it? Manliness. In fact, um, listen to some old things uh, that were said back in the old days. Um, for example, it was said of George Washington. After all, the greatest of Washington's qualities was a rugged manliness, which gave him the respect and confidence even of his enemies. That's what it was said of George Washington, that he had a certain manliness to him. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, it was said, he is going to be known as uh, sort of a boy's hero. He's going to be known preeminently for his manliness. There is going to be a Roosevelt legend. That was, um, by the way, said on a report by one of the governmental documents uh, back in, like, uh, when was it? 1909 uh, or something like that. They were predicting that he would go down as kind of a manly guy. 
Uh, man, manliness used to be a compliment back in those days when you'd say that in times past. It meant, you know, it was a worthy and distinct characteristic of, of what a guy could be or should be. And the problem is, you know, um, it, was, it was sort of on the same level if somebody said you're intelligent or you're brave or you're manly. That was something that you, you would include with compliments of who a guy would once be. Uh, even, you know, um, a quality that boys would strive for when they were little. Um, I, I wonder what's happened to that. You know, in, in our culture, in our day, are, are people still interested in, in, in manliness? In fact, I almost wanted to call uh, today's session practical manliness. But the connotation, manliness, well, today it's sort of frowned upon. And I think there's a few reasons for that. One, uh, men have not been very good. We've behaved badly, especially in our culture. And so the idea of manliness is sort of frowned upon, and it's become a joke. Manliness, in fact, the sitcoms and the TV shows and all the, you know, family men, you know, now are kind of a joke. And um, and it's kind of sad because uh, manly is sort of considered sort of Neanderthal, prehistoric man, Cro-Magnum man, or whatever they want to call him. And it's not, really, it's not really a compliment to say, oh, he's a real manly guy in some circles. Um, and the thing is, manliness in the old sense, in the old definition is good, but there's a better term, and that is godliness. Godliness is better than manliness. But the reason I, I kind of confuse the two a little bit in our conversation here is because I think there's an old school manliness that was very close comparatively than what we have today to godliness. There was a manliness that had to do with honor and integrity. There was a manliness that had to do with strength and protection. And there was a manliness that had to do with compassion and also care for others, especially your wife and especially the women in the church, the way we treated them and the way we thought about them. And, and, and manliness and godliness kind of went, went uh, hand in hand today. If you say manliness, most people aren't thinking godliness. So that's why we're calling this practical godliness because that's really what we endeavor to be. You know, old school manliness, I think, you know, maybe from like my grandfather's generation and maybe even earlier, old school manliness, it was just a different thing, and it was a good thing, and I think it was closer to godliness. The Art of Manliness, uh, there's a book called The Art of Manliness, Classic Skills and Matters for the Modern Man by Brett and Kate McKay. He lists some of the attributes that, that were old school uh, manliness, and I thought they were interesting. Look, look at this list. It looks out for and is loyal to his friends and family. Next, does the right thing even when it's not convenient. Thirdly, it is proficient in the manly arts. <laughs> That's something that uh, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I think it has to do with, uh, you know, knowing how to fix stuff and, and uh, work with your hands. That's something our culture, you know, men don't really need that as much anymore uh, because of, uh, you know, people, they, they, there's certain people that do that while we keep our hands clean and uncalloused. Um, in those days, you had to be proficient in manly arts. Uh, treat women with respect and honor serves and gives back to his community, sacrifices for the good of others, works hard and seldom complains, exhibits both great courage and tender compassionate, or compassion, has confidence but um, is not a pompous jerk, <laughs> is witty without succumbing to sarcasm, embraces instead of shirks responsibilities. Um, those were the attributes uh, that this guy saw in an old school manliness. And I think there's some interesting things there. And by the way, 
the scriptures, as we read them, I think they, they kind of teach a lot of those things that are listed there, actually. Uh, it's funny how, even though that's not a uh, biblical book, it's just some dude writing about manliness, I thought it was interesting that you can actually make the argument on all of those points that a biblical man, a guy who's a godly man, will actually demonstrate those same attributes, and we'll, we'll kind of explore that. So just to wet your whistle and get you ready for, for today's study, um, we've put together a little video that'll help us uh, understand some of the struggles, some of the things that men are dealing with today in current male culture. Why don't you guys go ahead and roll that? Okay, there I have it, guys. Uh, some thoughts to, uh, to work on there. Kind of interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll get into some of those perhaps later uh, and talk directly about that. But um, one of the things uh, I'd like you to do uh, is think with me here, uh, and uh, you might jot down a few notes, stuff to think about. Um, you know, wh- what does it mean, you know, to be practically godly? Um, putting godliness to work, and, um, and godliness, if, if, if we're truly calling ourselves men of God, which uh, a lot of us don't even want to say that, men of God, do you consider yourself a man of God? And a lot of us would say, well, <laughs> no, because I'm not even close to God. Um, godliness, uh, but that's what we're called to be. Um, we're, uh, we're called to be more and more like Him. In fact, um, it's interesting because um, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and then He said, you are the lights of the world. In other words, there needs to be sort of this reflective quality uh, within the men uh, that are walk, uh, men of faith, that we are people that walk and represent the Lord well. And, and the problem is, I think sometimes we don't do that. So part of that is, um, number one, being a gentleman. <laughs> That's the first thing, you jot that down. Uh, Luigi Pirandello, uh, in 18, uh, the late 1800s, he was an uh, Italian author and playwright. He said, anyone can be heroic from time to time, but a gentleman is something you have to be all the time. And uh, that's the thing. It seems like in the old school um, godliness, the man that was godly, he had his gentlemanliness on all the time. Um, I've, I've found that we have become a culture that likes our privacy, uh, and we, we kind of consider, okay, well, maybe when I'm out in public, I'll be a gentleman and do what people are watching, but behind closed doors, we put our gentleman uh, thing back in the drawer, and then we just kind of become the ogre, and we treat our family wrong, and we're, we're not doing the things that we're called to do. You know, what, what is a gentleman? Webster's Dictionary puts gentleman as this, a polite, gracious or considerate man with high standards of propriety or correct behavior. (laughs) Polite, that's one of the words of a gentleman. Uh, Consideration of others, courteous. Gracious, there in that definition, a gracious and considerate guy, which means kindness uh, and, uh, you know, of propriety, uh, which is the quality of being proper. Um, I wonder if uh, in our culture, uh, you know, you know, as Christians, we, we definitely have a little different standard, I think, of what's, what's proper, for example, in a conversation. You know, I remember um, taking my pastor skydiving, and we went to the Beagle Boy Sky Ranch, and I was just surprising him just to kind of, you know, and I got it all on video. It was kind of funny back in the old days. But, I, you know, I thought it'd be funny, but the problem with the Beagle Boy Sky Ranch was those guys were all um, unsaved kind of worldly dudes, and they're all cussing, and there were pictures of naked ladies in the hangar, and I was thinking, oh no, you know, here's, I brought my pastor to this place that's like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, uh, and, uh, but what was great about that, by the way, is my pastor, he's not, he wasn't the kind of guy that sort of whimpered, thought, oh no, we're in the world here, what are we going to do, and they, oh, my virgin ears, I heard some cuss words and stuff, it wasn't like that at all. 
Uh, he actually got right in there with them and started talking about the Lord and about the Bible, and they all started circling around and listening, and it was really kind of a, a fascinating thing to see what happened when a real godly man stood right in the middle of a bunch of guys that were vulgar and kind of crass, and, uh, and it, was, it was amazing to watch the whole climate of the room change uh, kind of radically. Uh, I wonder, when you walk into a room at work, uh, is there a difference? Do you, do you stand out from the crowd? Do people behave a little differently? Uh, because sometimes I think that's a mark whether you can tell, am I different than the average dude or do I just fit in with everybody else? Can they just keep going on with the dirty jokes or do they feel a little awkward uh, around me? And by the way, uh, people will do that. They'll, they'll treat you sort of uh, like you're a weirdo sometimes if you're not the guy that laughs at the dirty jokes and they know it. Um, people say, oh, yeah, well, here comes Holy Joe, you know, here comes, you know, the Jesus guy uh, or whatever. And that's okay. That's all right. Uh, but uh, it's interesting because the Lord's called us to be different. Come ye out from among them, the Bible says, be ye separate. Flip over to uh, the, the book of Ephesians real quick. I'll show you a little scripture there that's kind of important. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is exhorting the, the men and the women, the church at Ephesus, which by the way, Ephesus was kind of a worldly, godless town. You'd almost think of it as like a Las Vegas of the day. Um, the reason people came to Ephesus was because there was a giant temple to the goddess Diana. And she was this sort of multi-breasted goddess of fertility, and people came to the temple and worshiped uh, this, this goddess by committing sexual acts in the temple. It was kind of a gross deal, but the deal, the deal is so many people came, Ephesus became the wealthiest town around, and they even built special banks in Ephesus. They have actually archeologically dug up these huge vaults where they stored all the money from the people that came to worship goddess Diana. Um, and that's the people that Paul was trying to minister to, this very worldly city, and, and yet now there's these Christians living in the midst of the world. And so what does he say? It says here in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, um, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication which is sexual immorality, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness or foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God." Here Paul's putting it on pretty strong, saying, I want you to, to be careful not to be involved with the worldliness, the fornication, all that stuff. But the thing that's kind of interesting, he even goes into this verse 4, the filthiness or foolish talking or jesting. That's one of the things, you know, a gentleman actually knows that there's a line that you don't cross in the, in the things that you talk about. And, and it's, it's dirty, foolish, filthy kind of communication that the Lord doesn't want us to have but he wants us to be more on the lines of holy and pure. And I'm not saying you can't joke around as guys. Uh, I, I think the Lord invented humor, and I think the Lord uses humor. We see humor in the Bible, um, and I think it's a tool that is really a great thing. I think a good gentleman knows how to use humor, but there's a line that can be crossed. Uh, 
And uh, you, you got to be careful with that. Trust me, I know. I've made mistakes in this one where I like to joke around. And there's been times I've walked away from even a sermon thinking, oh man, I probably crossed the line there. And I didn't really want to do that. And I kind of felt like maybe I crossed that line. And, and you have to be careful with those kinds of things. But, but foolish jesting or talking, talking about stuff that's inappropriate, that's not what a, a godly man or a gentleman, if you would, uh, I think would do. And I think the, that we're called to maybe something higher than the rest of the world. You know, in, in this culture that we live, you can blog it up. Um, I've noticed that people feel like they can say anything. And, and you know what, what's happened in this culture? You can type away on your computer it's amazing how bold men are on the computer, but face-to-face, they would never say that to your face because you might punch them. Uh, they, they, you can't reach through the computer, right? But it's amazing how bold people are, and they cuss each other out in the blogs, and it's just vulgar. And I, I don't think we should be a part of that, quite frankly. I think that we should be parts of, of, of intelligent conversation, good discussion, and, you know, we've, we've resulted to name-calling. Have you ever watched the news and seen people debate on stuff, and, and, and today we're seeing this, this weird phenomenon where, where we're not really ideologically trying to, you know, debate and, and discuss the issues, um, but it's very much degraded to this uh, just insulting and calling people names, and you're just an idiot, and you don't know what you're talking about, and there's no real intelligent debate going, not, not in a lot of the news circles you'll see on the, on the news. Um, I feel like even in personal life, people are starting to do that. But it's a gentleman that will hear and listen and, and tune in, but then there'll be good uh, conversation and not just, you know, name-calling and just being kind of crude like the rest of the world. We've been called to be different. And, and uh, Romans chapter 12, you can jot that down, Romans 12, 10, it says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. That means to, when you say prefer, it's, the King James is saying, I want to prefer people ahead of myself. They, they have preference. It's not all about me, it's about them. And, and that's what the gentleman does. He, he prefers others, and that's godliness. That's what godliness does. That's what Jesus did. It says he, um, you know, made himself of no reputation, Philippians 2 says, made himself into the form of a servant, uh, and, and he was obedient even to the death of the cross, it says there in Philippians 2. Uh, and we're to be like Christ. <laughs> you know, um, those videos, uh, we saw a lot of that dealing mostly with marriage because that's where I think it pops out the ugliest <laughs> in men, where, you know, we don't really prefer our wife ahead of ourselves. And, and we've done whole ironwork studies on how we're supposed to treat our wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We did a whole, a whole teaching on that um, last year on this, on this very uh, men's, men's uh, ironwork study. Uh, but that's what the gentleman does. He prefers one another. And, and it's not just for wives. It's, it's, um, it's the way we treat each other, preferring each other. And, and by the way, uh, it's not just wives, it's the women in our church. I hope that Athey Creek women, whether it's a married woman or a single woman, my prayer would be that Athey Creek has the most loved, cared for, well-treated women in all of the world. Wouldn't it be great if this became the church that was just known as, man, if you're a single woman or a single mom or if you're a lady of any kind, you're going to be treated with great honor and uh, real respect, and the men prefer and care for the women ahead of themselves. Um, that would be a great mark of a church. Think with me about Jesus. 
In that day, in the first century, when Jesus was around, you know, if you were a woman in those days, there was no women's lib. Um, there, there was no, you know, equality in the workplace. There was none of that. If you were a woman uh, in those days, you were at a great disadvantage. And by the way, I still think somebody should do like a thesis or at least a term paper on wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ has reached the ears and the hearts of the people around the world, you see the most liberated women all around the world. That's the truth of the matter. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. I'd love to see one of our girls uh, from Athey Creek do a term paper on that at, uh, you know, Portland State or one of these Oregon State. It's probably not get a good grade, but it'd be a great paper. <laughs> be that as it may, uh, you know, um, Jesus was the great women's liber in the best sense of the word um, because he cared deeply about women. You know, the Pharisees used to pray piously, uh, according to tradition. They would pray, God, I thank you that I'm not a dog, a Gentile, or a woman. That's what they would pray. Now, um, that was the Pharisees, and that, that was kind of what they did. Now, it's great because here's Jesus, a Jew in that culture at that time, and he loved on Gentiles, and he died on the cross for Jew and Gentile alike to save us from our sins. But at the same time, you see Jesus always talking with and caring about women in a way that a lot of people thought was extremely inappropriate. Um, the woman at the well there in Math. Uh, uh, John chapter 4. Remember, he came to this woman at the well, and historically she was at the well at the time where the losers would go to the well. And if you're a woman at the well at that time of the day, it was not the, not, probably not a, a woman of great reputation. And later we find out she wasn't. She had a bad reputation. She had five husbands, and the one she was living with at the time wasn't really her husband at all. But Jesus stops and talks with her, and she marvels, and, and she says, how is it that you being a Jew talking to me, a Gentile woman of Samaria, um, which the Samaritans were even, you know, worse. The Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. They, the Jews uh, would make it uh, their point to go out of their way around Samaria so they wouldn't have to talk to Samaritans. Jesus said, we must needs go through Samaria. So, so they go to Samaria, finds a woman at the well and starts talking, and she marvels and says, how is it that you're even talking to me? And then Jesus lovingly talked with her, and she started to perceive that he was more than just some dude. And she, she finally got to a place that, I perceive that thou art a prophet, she said. And then Jesus started talking to her, and you know, whenever you get a Bible guy in the, in the room, you start asking Bible questions, and that's what she did. Uh, which place should we worship, Gerizim or Zion? Which one? The Jews say Zion, the Samaritans say Gerizim, which one? And Jesus told her this powerful thing, my Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Like Jesus is giving this woman great love and amazing doctrinal truth and starts talking with her and reveals even that he understands her sin, but not in a condemning way. So she runs into town and says, I've met the Messiah. And he's told me all the things about my life, and, and she's all excited. And the whole town was shaken because Jesus went and talked to a woman. Just a few chapters later in John, in John chapter 8, the Pharisees brought this woman who was caught in the middle of adultery, and she was probably, I mean, in the very act, so she was probably, you know, wrapped in a sheet or something, maybe even naked. They throw her down in, on the street and say, this woman was caught in adultery. Moses says we should stone her to death because she was adulterous. And I always ask the question, by the way, if they were caught in the very act of adultery, where was the man? Why wasn't he part of this discussion? It was the culture. They treated women badly. 
and they throw this woman down and they're condemning her and they're ready to stone her. They're picking up rocks, ready to kill her. But you know the story. Jesus started writing in the sand. And I believe, we don't know, the Greek word katagraphein, it, it means kind of to write against. So that's all we know. He's writing something probably against those guys that they probably, you know, I don't know, some motel name and a date and a guy, the guy from oldest to youngest is like, ooh, I better go. I think I hear my wife calling me. Off he goes. He drops his rock one by one. They all leave. And, 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 she, and Jesus says, where are your accusers? And she says, there's no man. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you or accuse you. He says, go your way and sin no more. I mean, Jesus lovingly, compassionately dealt with the woman who was caught in adultery where the culture would have stoned her to death. And the reason I say that is you always see Jesus treating women with great respect and gentlemanliness. Um, You don't see him being mean or ignoring or any of that stuff. Um, It's it's in Titus. You can jot it down, Titus chapter 2. Paul is dishing out some of the the behavioral things in the church that he wants to see. But in Titus chapter 2, he gives this word, um, and he says, young men, he says, make sure that you exhort them to be sober-minded. And the word there, sober, uh, the Greek word, can also be translated as discreet. Kind of interesting. The young men be taught to be discreet. That's interesting. And he says, Um, in all things, the young men, showing themselves to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Um, The the older men in the church are to teach the younger men in the church to be, uh, have some gravity and sincerity and to have sound speech that nobody could criticize or condemn. And, and, you know, it's an interesting thing because of our culture, you, you kind of hear speech go out the window. It's the way we talk to each other, and there's a crass, kind of crude, sort of frivolous sort of speech that goes on. Um, I do wonder, you know, it's, it's funny, I've noticed that um, depending on who I'm talking with and what group, the conversation is very different. Um, have you ever thought of, uh, you know, for example, well, let me, just, let me just say it this way. I was talking with some young guys the other day. We were talking, and, and they were all talking about the latest YouTube video that they were watching. And, uh, and, and they were, you know, just kind of doing their thing. And I was just thinking, but in my mind, I was thinking, if my dad were in this room, what would he be thinking about this group of guys? And I don't know. I can't speak for my dad, but I think he'd be thinking, these are just a bunch of little sissy guys with their YouTube phones and talking about things that are just kind of embarrassing that young men shouldn't be talking about. And it wasn't that it was bad or evil, it's just that, see, my dad is kind of one of those old school guys that's a gentleman, but he also knows how to talk about things of real substance. Like when you're talking with my dad, you rarely just talk about just dumb stuff. Um, In fact, if you talk about dumb stuff, usually you'll see him do something else. He'll go somewhere else or get busy working or, you know, caring for my mom or going to someone who will talk about something of real substance. And it's not that he's a prude or a weirdo. In fact, what's interesting is when when my dad's in the room, um, everybody's kind of listening to what he's got to say. And he's not a big talker as much as I am, but when he talks, uh, he's got some heft, some gravity. And uh, you guys know guys like that. And and older men are to teach younger men in the church how that kind of works out. 
Uh, and uh, I wonder if we've maybe dropped the ball just a little bit on that. So that not only do our young men need to hear that message, but I think in our culture, maybe some of us older guys need to think about it as well. Maybe we've never got that memo from the Bible that there should be a sort of a, a gravity to the stuff that we're talking about, the, the things that we're doing, you know, and, and uh, being kind of, uh, you know, like the, the Word says here in, in Titus chapter 2. Well, be that as it may, Jesus was gracious, kind, and compassionate. We could talk about more things about Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example. Remember, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So godliness looks like Jesus because Jesus is God, right? So when you want to see what a gentleman looks like, just, just use Jesus as your example. Do you think Jesus was walking around talking about frivolous stuff? You know, I, you know, I think that Jesus was uh, able to use humor and I'm sure he was able to laugh with his disciples. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that there wasn't, you know, that levity and stuff like that. But at the same time, um, Jesus was always about his father's business, saying, what does God want me, the father in heaven? What does he want me to do? I always do the will of the father, Jesus said. And that's what we're called to be. First Peter chapter 2, jot this down, verse 21 and 22. It says there, for, this, for to this you were called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So, this idea of being a gentleman, you follow Jesus, who's the perfect gentleman. By the way, uh, that's one of the things doctrinally that is kind of important to know, that Jesus is a gentleman. Do you know how um, there in the book of Revelation, it says Jesus speaking to his church, he says, behold, I stand, Revelation chapter three, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Um, Jesus is still a perfect gentleman, even in presenting himself to all of humanity for a savior. And if uh, he's not barging in, he's not forcing everybody to do anything, but he lays his life down, he becomes a servant, he lovingly knocks on the door of men's hearts, and it's up to us to open those doors. I love the gentlemanliness of, of Jesus. So, so that's the first thing, just to be a gentleman, going back to what a gentleman used to look like. And I think it looks like Jesus, really. But there's a word there that, that is part of gentlemanly, and I think this is important, and that is gentle. That's the second thing, if your first is being a gentleman, but also, number two, being gentle. Um, I think as guys, it's, it's really easy for us to be gruff and sort of harsh and speak a word that's pointed and sharp to our wives, and um, it just looks ugly. Um, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it, Judy Slaughter uh, tells a story that makes me kind of cringe a little bit because I probably have done some of this stuff uh, before, you know. But she was over at a person's house, and there was this guy, um, an older gentleman, and his wife cooked this beautiful, it was some like really fancy meal, you know, and it was beautiful. And Judy was just marveling how beautiful she had, you know, something like, you know, chicken cordon bleu, and it was all perfectly prepared. And she was like, wow, this is better than any restaurant I've ever seen. And, um, and the, the husband said, where's the gravy? And the wife said, oh, well, I didn't make a gravy, but I made, and I forget, it was like a, um, some, some fancy sauce that she made for the chicken. Uh, I forget what she called it. You guys probably know what it is. But, but it wasn't gravy, but it was like some fancy sauce that's really hard to make. 
Um, and she made the sauce for that. And he says, you, you didn't make gravy? Well, that's fine. <laughs> and he just sat there at the head of the table and started eating. But there was no, wow, honey, this dinner is beautiful. You've prepared it perfectly. Let's give a round of applause for, for our, my wife. She's amazing. None of that. It was just, where's the gravy? Well, the wife, she went into the kitchen while everybody was eating her fa fancy meal, and she whipped up some gravy real fast and brought it out to her husband and sat it down there. Um, who's in error in that story? <laughs> now, uh, okay, I, I, I tend to immortalize my dad in front of you guys. I've realized that because you guys come, oh, I'm your dad. He's like right next to, you know, Michael the Archangel, I think. And because and, uh, <laughs> I do, I love my dad and he is a great guy. But one of the things I, I didn't realize is my dad, you know, he, he, he's kind of sarcastic sometimes. And, um, and I remember he would say stuff uh, at dinner time and, uh, and he doesn't do this anymore. But I remember when I was a kid, and my mom's really sweet and everything. She always took it with a real you know, like laughter and stuff. But I remember he'd say stuff like if, if, the, if the biscuits at dinner time were burned or something, my dad would just joke around and say, hey, these, these would make nice hockey pucks, stuff like that. And so I thought that was normal. <laughs> Do you guys know what I'm talking about? When you get married, sometimes there's, you realize at a moment you're like, wow, I guess that's not normal. You don't make fun of your wife's food when she cooks it. Uh, somehow my mom was really tough and she took that easily and always smiled and it was kind of a, a joke and funny in our house, but, but I realized Debbie didn't think that was very funny when I said that her biscuits were looking like hockey pucks or whatever. I'll never forget she made this chicken, um, it was actually a taco pie, which she made this really good taco pie back in the day. And, and, um, but she decided to cut a little corner once, and I think she went to Costco, and this is when the kids were like, you know, three, four, five years old. We were all sitting around the table all excited because taco pie is one of our favorites. But, um, but the taco pie, she went to the store, and instead of making her own crust by scratch, which she always did, she decided to cut corners, and she found the crust at Costco, the pre-made crust, you know? But, um, and she cooked the taco pie. The problem is she didn't realize it was, it was graham cracker crust, you know, like for dessert for like lemon meringue pie or whatever. So if you could sort of picture hot sauce and taco stuff meat with graham cracker sugar at the bottom of it. And so we, we took the first bite of that and I'm thinking, I almost said something, you know, I almost said something sarcastic, but then I thought, okay, wait, I gotta say something nice. And I said, this is what I said. I said, um, you know what would go really good with this taco pie? And, um, and they all said, what? My kids, my wife, what? I said, a bowl of cereal. <laughs> Didn't, it still didn't work. It, it was still not uh, the nicest thing to say to my wife. And I have since learned um, uh, that, you know, here, here's, when you really think about it, my wife is, you know, working hard to feed our family and to work over the stove and, and try to, you know, cook up a nice meal and, and make it nice for us. And, you know, um, and if you were the one always cooking, it wouldn't always turn out. It may never turn out if you were the one cooking. And it's funny, you know, uh, when we start to try to do those same things that they're doing, it's, we can be so critical as we sit, um, you know, and watch what our wives do. But, uh, you know, have you, you, you guys with kids, you know how this goes. You never appreciated your wife more than when she went out shopping with friends or whatever and you were asked to watch the kids. And you realized at that moment, wow, this is hard. And you're wiped out, you know, four hours of watching. I remember Tad and I, we had a, a, a little practice where we would, um, 
you know, at Christmas, like somewhere early in December, we let Marna and Debbie go out together and shop. And so we big heartedly said, we'll take the kids, you know. And, um, but it was always interesting how by the time they were done, they'd come back and the house was destroyed. The dishes were piled up and Tad and I were just exhausted. And uh, um, what I used to do is just put the kids in their car seats and drive around because they'd sometimes fall asleep. And that was the best uh, babysitting. But I just remember thinking, wow, that's hard work. And she does this all the time. And, and I didn't even do very well. And here's the thing, you know, um, I think we can do that in marriage, but we also, you know, I think our culture, <clears throat> we can be really critical <clears throat> just of, of the, the opposite gender in and of itself. Oh, that's women. And, we, and, and men talk about women and, and like, they're, like they're the lesser or something like that. Bible says nothing of that. Bible tells us where to treat our, our women in our church. If you're married, you treat them, um, your wives, like, you know, with honor. But if you're in the church, you treat our, our sisters in the church like sisters. That's what the Bible says. Treat them like sisters, like you protect them, you're, uh, you're kind to them, you're looking out for them. That's the kind of behavior we should be showing. Uh, to be gentle, not to be gruff or harsh, but to be gentle. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, which patience is one of those things a grouchy guy is not very good at, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what a godly man should look like, full of the Holy Spirit. It should, it, we should see the fruit of that Spirit in our lives. So gentleness, what a huge key and what an important part uh, of our faith and our walking. You know, it's to be considerate, kind, patient. Um, I'm amazed at how many men really just don't treat their wives very nicely. And I see it even here at church. I wonder what happens at home sometimes, you know, when I see the way guys treat their wives here at the church. By the way, those scenarios you saw in the video there, a few of those I've actually seen. <laughs> I've seen the guy walk out uh, with the coffee in hand and the wife hauling all the stuff and him just walking in like that. I've seen that at Athey Creek. I gotta say, you're like, was it I? Did I do that? I'm trying to think back. Uh, yeah, you parked way down there. Um, I've even seen, now maybe I'm just judging, I've seen women drop their husbands off at the door, drive their car down, and he looked pretty healthy. Like, I think he just ran a marathon or something. He drops off here, and she drives down to the back 40, parks her car, and hikes up the hill. I've seen that, where I'm like, well, it's a little odd, a little odd. Now, maybe I'm judging, I don't know, but boy, it's something to think about. You know, am I being uh, the Christian gentleman? Uh, am I treating my wife? Really, see, the thing is, um, if you really are honest about it for a second, it's amazing that a woman would want to live with you at all let alone stay with you for years. Have you ever thought about that? Um, you know, there's, there's moments in my marriage where I've just thought, man, I don't even know why Debbie would even want to be around me like 50 miles from me. But she likes being with me and we hang out together and she's sticking to it. I'm like, man, just for that alone, she should be treated like a princess all the time. You know, I think that that's the thing, guys. You, you and I need to kind of start changing our mentality and realizing, wow, there's this woman in our life. And I'm not just talking to the married guys, because single guys, you'll probably be married someday, maybe. If not, uh, it's also treating the women in our church. I think we need to, to kind of rethink how we, uh, you know, treat women in general and to treat them like princesses. Yeah, but Brett, she's mean to me sometimes. She does this and she does that. Um, making excuses of why you're not treating your wife with kindness and gentleness gentlemanliness is, is not manly. 
That's not a manly behavior, making excuses of why you treat your wife badly. That's actually a, a very wimpy, uh, goofy, modern man kind of thing to be complaining about all that stuff. Um, we're called to do what, we're, what the Bible tells us to do. And we're either gonna man up and do what God tells us, or we're gonna whimper and, um, and treat our wives badly because we think we have a good argument. Bible says we're to die to ourselves. You know, when Paul says that he wants us to present our bodies a, a living sacrifice, that's the only problem. A living sacrifice tends to squirm off the altar. That's the problem. And you and I are called to die to ourselves, to give up our thing, to prefer our wife or others over ourselves. That's what a true godly man practically will do. Just die to ourselves. You don't see Jesus defending himself. He don't, you don't see him, you know, uh, you know, telling everybody what they were doing wrong. He, he was just kind and compassionate, merciful. He, the only people he got upset at really was the religious leaders who were, you know, laying heavy burdens on everybody else. That's what Jesus got fired up about. Well, so you, gentlemanly, uh, that's one thing. Also gentleness, just being gentle as husbands, as men in the church, treating our wives with gentleness. Why gentleness? You know, the, Peter talked about it. He said, um, we are like, show honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Um, and it's not weaker, inferior. We've talked about this. Weaker means just different. You're the root beer mug, she's the fine wine glass. The wine glass is a weaker vessel than the root beer mug. But um, the wine glass is a much more honorable uh, vessel than the, than the root beer mug. And as I look at you guys, yeah, root beer mugs, that's what I see out here. But when I see the women in our church, I see wine glasses uh, that are, um, you know, uh, a beautiful part of our church and should be handled with great care and love and compassion uh, because not they're less than, but they're just different. They're different. Uh, number three, I'm just kind of, you know, shooting at some topics here. What about this one? Uh, provide for the family. A, a true godly man practically, in just all practicality, even as God is called Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides for us, you and I are called as men to be providers. Um, and if you don't provide, well, listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but if any man provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. That's a strong word from old Timothy to, Paul to Timothy. You've denied the faith and you're worse than an infidel if you don't provide. Now, I know what you guys are thinking. Okay, so that's money, right? Yes, but it's also everything else. You have to understand, he's not talking about just providing, you know, the paycheck and the groceries and stuff like that. Um, what are you as a man required to provide for your own house? Um, here's a few thoughts for you. Stability. Stability. Do you bring stability to the house? Or when you walk in the door after a day, day of work, do you bring mayhem and fear? Are your kids more excited about you being home? Because, man, there's stability there. Um, and you know that dad's in the house, man, all things are good now. Or are they gonna get yelled at? Are they gonna be criticized? Are they only gonna get a, a chiding or a correction? No affection, no love? Um, that's, that's a good question to ask yourself. When I'm in the house, am I providing joy and stability for my family? Not just stability, but what about a listening ear or, or compassionate heart? Or, or what about edification, where you're building up your family? Are you a builder or a terror downer? Are you a destroyer? Um, I, I see guys tear, tear people down. You know, like the video, that one guy, you know, saying, uh, 
you know, my wife, she sits there and takes, it takes her all, you know, an hour and a half just to get ready for church or whatever. You know, that's, that's not edifying. That's just tearing someone down, uh, especially that was horrible. I see parents do this to their kids, um, where they talk about their kids' flaws and characteristics publicly. And there's Junior standing right there. Oh, I can't believe Junior is always doing this. He's lying. He lies all the time. Lies. And, and, and there's a bunch of people looking at Junior, and Junior's standing there embarrassed. Um, you're embarrassing Junior. It, now, I'm all for correcting Junior and teaching him to not be a liar. But I see men with an insensitivity to what they're saying publicly, and it's not edifying. What does the Bible say about edification? The word edification means to build up. Listen to this, Romans 14, 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. What are you to pursue? Things that make peace and edification. That's Romans 14, 19. In chapter 15 of Romans, verse 2, it says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. A godly man practically will build up others and encourage others, build them up. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, so encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. The church in Thessalonica, Paul says, you guys are already doing that, man. Good job. Um, You know, it's so easy to be someone who tears people down. It's easy to be a man who can talk bad about others and criticize. Criticism is easy. Anybody can do it. And it's super easy to find things to criticize. It's a little more of a challenge, and it takes a little more of an intellect to be a person who can walk up and build up and approve the things that are excellent, and to build a person up rather than tear them down. I feel like that's a lost art within godly men, to be those who are builders, uh, not just uh, of houses and, and, uh, you know, stuff like that, but builders of people, building up your kids, encouraging them, edifying your wife, you know, rather than criticizing what she didn't do or that she didn't do a good job, to, to go and, and just build her up and encourage her and tell, you the, tell her the things that, she, you know, you like about her. Have you ever, here's when you know you've probably dropped the ball. When your wife comes up to you and says, can you tell me something you like about me? If your wife comes up to you and says, just tell me one thing you like about me, that means you have failed, you're a miserable loser as a husband. Oh, wait, I'm not building each other, I'm criticizing. Sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. Uh, you see, it's easy to criticize, but when, that should be a good red flag for us as men. When our wives are saying, just, can you tell me something you, you like about me? Um, that means we probably haven't been doing our job. Your wife should be encouraged and built up, and uh, you say, yeah, but Brett, she's not this and she's not that. That's where it gets really ugly, because I've seen a lot of marriages. I've done over a thousand weddings, a lot of premarital counseling, a lot of postmarital counseling, And man, if there's one thing that I've learned, it's this, your wife is amazing. And there's no other woman that could replace your wife. And if you get rid of that wife and go to another, it's not gonna work out for you. It rarely, rarely, rarely works out. And somehow guys think they can trade in their old wife for a new model that's gonna be better. And that's not the way it works. That's why Solomon, who was an expert on this, more than I am, he's an expert, because he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. And what did Solomon say? He said, brothers, stick with the wife of your youth. That's what the Bible says, stay with the wife of your youth. And if you're going to stay with her, which you should, and we are, right, what you need to do is build her up. If she's unhappy, and if she's dropping the ball, and if she's upset all the time, 
You have to understand as a man, a gentleman, a godly man owns that himself and realizes that she's not the problem. The godly man knows he's the problem. 1 Corinthians 11 says, the woman is the glory of the man. It's an interesting word, glory, because we think, yeah, that's my wife. She's my glory. That's my girl. That's not what we're saying. The Bible's saying the woman is, and the Greek word for the word glory, it's a word that means something kind of interesting, the shining out and the reflection of. That's what it means. The woman is the glory, the shining out or the reflection of the man. And if I see a wife who's confident and really loving her husband and loving her kids and happy and content in what she's doing, that usually means that the husband's doing what he's supposed to be doing. But if I see a wife who's frustrated and upset with her husband and, and with his work and frazzled with the kids and, and unhappy and unkept and maybe not combing her hair or anything like that, it's the man's fault. 99.999% of the time, it's the man's fault because the woman is the glory of the man, the shining out, the reflection of the man. Now, I know there's exceptions to that. Don't come up after this, but I know a story of a guy, my cousin's aunt's uncle, his, you know, I don't want to hear that. I, I, I'm talking about us personally right now. Just think about your own situation right now and just ask yourself, how, how am I doing on this treating of others? Am I a gentleman? Am I a, a Christian who's walking more in maturity? And am I, am I compassionate? Am I, a, a, am I being gentle in my words that I speak? Any, any guy can be, a, you know, a jerk and speak words of harshness. Um, but it's the man that is godly that's going to be able to to speak a word of compassion and kindness, and it's going to make a huge difference. Uh, edification, good thing. Um, by the way, uh, live like a deacon. That's a, that's a new phrase I think I'm going to use. Uh, live like a deacon. Why? Well, um, flip over to 1 Timothy. I'm almost done. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I like the requirements for a deacon and an elder in the church, but the deacon one, for some reason, you know, if you're a deacon in the church, that means you're, you're able to minister and serve. And by the way, a deacon in the church, does anybody know how are deacons uh, found in the church? Who picks the, who the deacons are? Anybody? The congregation picks the deacons. And that's what's happened at Eighth Creek. We've had times where we've had deacon selections where, where the congregation, sometimes it'll be on a Sunday night celebration or a We've done it even on Wednesday nights in times past where we have people say, these are men that we see who are doing this. Right here, 1 Timothy 3, verses 8, uh, 8 through 15. Look at verse 8. It says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with pure conscience. But let these also first be tested then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What a great, that, that, that's worth meditating. Can I give you guys that assignment for this next month? is to say, I'm going to look at the list of the deacon, and I'm going to see how I'm doing with these things. I'm going to go down the list, and, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to have you pray through that, and maybe even pray with a journal open and your pen and, you know, or pencil out, and write down 
um, how you think you're doing with each one of those attributes. And if you don't understand one of the attributes, look it up, do a word study. You can Google it nowadays, it's easy. Uh, and, and say, how am I doing at this list? Because the deacon is kind of a picture of what a godly man I think is supposed to look like. We could also argue that Ephesians 5, verses 23 through 33 is also another passage that says what a man should look like, especially in the context of marriage. You know, that husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself, it says there in verse 28 of Ephesians 5. So, I mean, Ephesians 5, verses 23 through 33 is another checkpoint for you. Um, it's not just with your wives or with women in the church, but also with the children. Uh, how do you treat children? Um, I think that's something that uh, a good godly man will consider. And the reason why is it was the disciples who said, get these kids out of here. Um, they're in the way. But Jesus said, hey, you guys, suffer the little children to come into me. It doesn't mean make the children suffer for you anti-kid people. Yeah, make them suffer. No, that's not what Jesus meant. He meant, allow the children to come unto me. And he put them on his knee, and he, and he loved on them and cared for them. You know, um, there's a stern warning, by the way, for you dads. It's a stern warning. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. He says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And the idea is don't say things that, you know, make them angry and embarrass them, uh, you know, just being mean or kind of a, if, if you ever sense that you're tearing your child down and you're making them feel bad just for the sake of feeling bad, you're, you're doing it wrong. Um, it's okay to, um, there's, there's a, a notion of a child's will versus a child's spirit. Um, the will has to be broken in all of us. The spirit is not meant to be broken. So you don't want to break your child's spirit, but you do want to break their will where they learn to comply to the Lord, follow the Lord, submit themselves to the Lord and any authority that the Lord has put over them. There's something that hasn't been taught to a generation, submission to authority. Um, and that's something I think that we all could do probably better, teaching our kids what that actually means. Um, so that's the question I would ask. Have you given up on practical godliness? Um, have you just said, you know what, our culture is the way it is. I'm going to be like every other dude living in Portland, Oregon. Uh, or would you be willing to say, I'm going to rethink what it means to be a man in relationship to being a Christian man? What is godliness? And what does godly manliness look like? It's not, it's, I'd say the manliness that's in the Bible is something that is to be coveted, something that's to be appreciated, something that we're seeing less and less of. But man, to, to say, I'm going to work on those attributes. You know, um, if we review the video for a second, the first scenario, the guy, you know, uh, letting his wife carry all the stuff. Man, let, let's be brothers. I mean, I, I told you we'd be really practical today. Really, really practical. I think we should be looking for ways to help make our wives' lives easier. And uh, I'd love to see that, not just at church, but for you to consider, man, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, if, if my wife drops something, I'm going to be the one to bend down and pick it up and, and help her out. I'm going to take the trash out without her having to ask all the time. Uh, and when she asks, I'm not going to gripe and grumble and go, oh, brother, you know, you're going to have a great attitude and just practical, manly godliness. That's what that looks like, just taking ownership and stepping up to the plate. You know, um, the, the, you know, the holding the door open. Who cares if women's libbers say, I don't want you to hold the door for me. Uh, hold it open anyway and do it with a smile. 
Um, and if she says, you know, I don't need you to open the door, uh, uh, then you could just shut it on her face. No, no, uh, no, you could just say, okay, sorry, uh, but be a gentleman. I'd rather be a gentleman than a jerk. And, uh, and I'm going to hold the door open. By the way, I hold the door open for men or women, uh, whoever's going through the door. That's, that's something I think that is kind of a courteous, manly, gentlemanly kind of thing to do. Um, and, um, you know, my, my dad and my grandpa, and they taught me stuff that I don't think people teach anymore. Um, you know, I mean, I know I'm old school, but, you know, when Paul so perfectly acted uh, with Hannah there, <laughs> that was like the best. Your face was priceless, by the way, when she got hit by the water there. Uh, great acting. I hope you don't do that in real life. That was pretty convincing. <laughs> but, you know, um, my dad taught me, Brett, when you're walking on the street with your wife, you stand in the, the between anything that's dangerous or anything that's, you know, you, you stand on the car side, she stands on the protected side. Um, husbands, you don't, you don't um, walk away from your wife like, like you know, Joe did, jokingly. Uh, uh, he just walked away and let her, you know, by herself. You walk with your wife. That's something I've noticed husbands and wives don't do anymore. They don't walk with each other. Um, and, uh, and also, you don't walk behind a woman upstairs. Uh, that's something my grandpa and my dad taught me. You just don't do that. Uh, what you do, if there's a woman who's going up the stairs, let her go up the stairs, even if you have to wait. Or if it's your wife, walk next to her. Be a gentleman. Walk next to her up the stairs and hold her hand. Um, like there's just some really practical, godly, gentlemanly kinds of things that you and I, I think, should maybe re, uh, you know, re- take another look at it and, and maybe reapply to our lives. Um, you know, being affectionate and, uh, and not, not um, embarrassing your wife in front of people or saying things you know, but always building her up, especially in public, but also in private. Um, you know, and, and there's just practical, gentlemanly things. You know, um, uh, I love Brian's video when he came home from work. Um, he, he came home, took off his jacket, said he's hungry, when's dinner ready, and they went right to the video game. I'm sure none of you guys do that, because that would be the most rude, horrible way that a man could ever come home from work. I'm sure none of you guys do that, right? <laughs> guys are like slouching down in there. No, what you do is what, what my dad did. See, my dad, this is stuff I just, I realized I got just because my dad was that guy. But he would come home and the first thing he would do is walk straight to my mother, grab her and give her a big hug and a kiss. And he would say something really endearing. Uh, and it's so funny because I'd watch my dad at work all day as a, you know, a superintendent on a construction job and he'd be barking out orders and, you know, nobody messed with my dad. You know, my dad's six foot four, 225 pounds and just uh, strong as an ox. Nobody messed with my dad and he would say stuff gruffly and stuff. Suddenly we get home, ding! He was like this guy who just was so sweet and considerate. His voice changed when we walked in the house. It went from the construction voice to this, hi, sweetie. It's like he went up a few octaves in his, in his voice, and, and he just treated her like it's just this gentle and just give her a kiss, and, and then they would go and sit down somewhere together. And he would take 10, 15 minutes and just sync up with her and talk and hear how her day was and ask her questions. And, and um, you know, what's funny is I, I, I didn't realize, you know, you know, as a married guy that sometimes it's, you know, I, I thought my dad was just genuinely interested in my mom's day. 
And the reason why is because he was. He was, he, was, he was interested in her, in her day. So when I got married, I thought, well, I'll be interested then because my dad was interested. But what I realized, when I first got married at 21, I'd, I did that, I sat down, so how'd your day go? And suddenly she starts talking about stuff that I could care less about. <laughs> and I was like, what's going on? I thought I was gonna enjoy this. <laughs> and, um, and she just went on and on and on. Three hours later, I was like, eh. and I didn't want to say it's dinner ready because I knew that'd be kind of rude. No, I'm, just, I'm sort of being facetious, but here's the thing. What, what Debbie and I had to learn is something that my parents already kind of knew, but I didn't really get, and that is um, we both kind of abbreviated our conversation, and we had to learn to say, I'm going to share just the high points. My wife would share the high points. I'm the guy that she'd say, Brett, how was your day? And I'd say, it's fine. And I just told her how my day was. I told her every detail of how my day was, uh, and I had nothing else to say. Now, now, what I learned then is I thought, no, I, I think I need to fill in some of those blanks, and, and I started learning to say, when she'd say, Brad, how was your day? I would just lovingly say, well, today I met with so-and-so and talked to him, and we went over here and did that, and had some good things at the church and stuff that, and then, and then she kind of sinks up and, and starts knowing what my day was about, and I start hearing what her day was about, and here's what happens. After years of marriage, you know what actually starts to happen is the things she starts sharing with me suddenly become interesting to me. Because listen, Jesus nailed it, and he knew it when he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart will be into whatever your treasure is. And when you invest time into your wife to talk with her and to share with her and hear what she's feeling, what she's going through, as time goes by, suddenly that becomes the most important thing to you. And it's funny because now when I say, Deb, how was your day? I really am curious. And I'm wondering what she's feeling and how she's doing. And, you know, and when I was a 20-year-old punk, I didn't understand that. I had to learn that my treasure needed to be invested. And then in time, I started caring about really nothing more than that. Uh, it's really kind of an amazing thing. So to sit down, give her time, then I would go and help with the kids, take out the trash, wrestle with Joey, uh, you know, and then we'd have dinner, and then we'd do family devotions around the table. Um, but I didn't play video games. That was not my thing, because there were a lot of other things that were really important for me to do um, as a husband, as a father, as a man. And I'm just saying, I know, I, you know, and trust me, you know, I, I understand video games. I understand, uh, you know, I've played Call of Duty and stuff like that. At first, I was the guy that would run around like this, you know, <laughs> on Call of Duty, I know. Uh, but but uh, I, I eventually, once Joey got to the age, we'd play a little Call of Duty. It was a measured out amount of time, and we'd kind of, you know, uh, intentionally uh, play, knowing that we had limited time. But... I think most of us if, of men, we've got more important things to do. Um, and I'm not criticizing watching sports or playing video games. I mean, there's a time that can be allotted for a little rest and relaxation, but I'm pretty sure most of you have things that are way more important to prioritize. And if you've become that dude that just comes home, doesn't even say to his wife and grabs the video controller and just goes at it until dinner's ready and your kids are, don't be that guy. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I'm hoping that we can reconsider as brothers at Athey Creek, to, to bring back the gentleman, to bring back the godly man who's strong, has vision and direction. May the Lord give us wisdom. Amen? Amen. And Lord, I pray, Father, for these guys, these, these men, Lord, of this church, that you would use this to stir us up. 
Lord, it's so easy to settle for mediocrity and, and just kind of go our, our way and kind of create a new normal and even think that what we're doing is normal. But at the same time, Lord, sometimes these splashes of cold water are, are good for us to remind us to know what really is important. So, Lord, I know that a lot of us might be willing right now to make a change and to reprioritize, but, Lord, your word is true when it says the spirit is willing, but the flesh, it becomes weak. So, Lord, I pray that our flesh would be pushed down, that your spirit would move in us and through us, and that you would cause us to be brothers who are careful, to be men that are godly, representing you well. Lord, I pray that the conversations that we have would represent you well. Forgive us where we've talked about stuff that's crude or laughed at jokes that are cross or bad that, that really would um, represent you badly, Lord, as, as we just kind of um, just go with the flow of the world. But I pray that instead that we'd be men that make a difference. When we walk into a room, I pray that somehow, some way, that we'd be the guys to make the change for the positive, that we'd be in, encouraging one another, building each other up, caring for the ladies in our congregation, the single gals, the young gals, the the, the wives in this church, the grandmothers, Lord, help us to, to care for them and, and to treat them as you would treat them, Lord. So I pray that you'd give us wisdom. Bless these brothers now as we go our way. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.